Hello, everybody. This is the Lonely Guy, Steve Center, from the center of the known universe, Indianapolis, Indiana. You're listening to the Theories of Adulting podcast, the show that explores various theories of human motivation to explain the how, the what, and most importantly, the why of people's behavior. This podcast is for learners who love understanding people and why they do the strange things they do. A lot of research has been done into how people decide how they are going to respond to circumstances. Many people's decision-making tends to be driven by fear. Now, this information comes from an article by Pierre J. in 2020 titled, How Does Fear Influence Risk Assessment and Decision-Making? And while that sounds fascinating, it actually was very interesting, and it's going to help us uh, today as we discuss an important topic. This fear is both good and bad. Some people need the fear to be motivated to make a decision at all, but often fear becomes too much and the decision-making process becomes stifled. Uh, For example, it's quite natural when a car repair is needed to think of all the money that has already been put into the car. If already repairs have totaled some large amount, then walking away seems like admitting defeat, but if the needed repair is made And then another breakdown happens. It almost seems like we were fools spending money on a product that was going to break again. This is the most common rationalization and difficulty in deciding on car repairs and stems from the fear of making the wrong decision, especially when money is tight. Now, I promise, even though I'm about to use the word statisticians, this is actually very interesting. Statisticians will argue that worrying about the past and the future of money spent clouds the issue and is completely irrelevant. We're going to use flipping a coin as an example to see if we can help to clarify this. When a coin is flipped, the odds are one in two that it will be heads or tails. Those 50-50 odds are true each time the coin is flipped, but that's not how our human mind perceives chance. If a coin is flipped and lands on heads then the next time it's assumed the coin is more likely to land on tails, since it will be tails 50% of the time. So if we were to think about this like trial one, we think one of two will be tails, but it lands heads. So then we go to trial two, and now we're thinking there's a three and four chance it will be tails, but it lands head. And then in trial three, we think, well, you know, three in a row. So there's a seven in eight chance it will be tails. And then it lands tails. Eventually, the assumption that tails will come but will be proven correct. But that is more about the inevitability of chance, not because it was due or because it had been heads in previous flips. To state this more correctly, uh, we have to acknowledge that each and every flip is independent of all the others. The reality of the odds of a coin flip are trial one is one and two. It will be tails. And even if it lands heads, trial two will be one and two that it will be tails. Even if it lands heads, trial three is still one and two that it will be tails. And so then maybe it does land tails. That each flip of the coin is its own separate occurrence can be difficult to accept because eventually both heads and tails will be the answer. But Odds really only have an impact on very large number of chances. If we were to flip that coin 5,000 times, then yes, the aggregate odds over many chances would matter, but on any individual flip, they do not. In the example of the car 
making a repair should be considered in isolation from any other repairs that were made or are going to be needed. The only exceptions would be if a lack of a repair might cause additional damage. But that is not random odds, that's certainty. The right answer is, I'm not going to tell you whether or not to repair your car, but we are supposed to think about each repair in a vacuum, not considering any other other repairs in the car's history. And that is hard to do. So how do we do it? So here's our theory for today. Episode, we discuss a new theory. And here we're talking about something called sunk, S-U-N-K, cost. Sunk cost is what has already been spent on a project or item. It cannot be retrieved or refunded. Buying a television is not a sunk cost if after three days it was decided it was unwanted and could be returned. But a car repair is the perfect example of sunk cost because once you pay for it, it's over. You can't go back to the mechanic and say you regret the repair and you want your old brakes back. After a period of time, the television then also becomes a sunk cost because it can no longer be returned. The understanding of sunk cost helps to show that each car repair is independent of all others and each must be decided on its cost and merit alone. So now you might be asking, is this podcast today about car repairs? <laughs> and the answer is no. It's about introducing this idea of sunk cost. And with our understanding of how we might apply sunk cost to practical situations like a car, it can then be used to help decision making in our homes and relationships. So I'm going to go through three different areas where we could see sunk cost have a high, very strong impact. So about five years ago, I went into my son's room to help him clean and organize it. I told him we were going to do it a little differently. I picked up each item and I asked him how it made him feel right then at that moment. And yes, it was probably a little silly, but it proved the point when I picked up a book I had bought him a few years earlier. He had started learning French in high school. So I bought him a book in French so he could read it. Well, subsequently, he quit the class after one semester. I don't think he ever opened the book. I asked him how the book made him feel. And for everything else previously, he had said good or fine. But he looked at the book and he paused and he finally said guilty. So the book was making him feel guilty. So in a dramatic gesture, I tossed the book onto the table where the Goodwill pile was collecting. He was really surprised that I was willing to get rid of a present that I had purchased for him that he had never used. But I explained to him that the book was triggering guilt every time he saw it, and that had to be awful. Get rid of the book. Get rid of the guilt. If he decides in the future he wants to learn French, I, I'm very confident he can find a book written in French for a couple bucks on Amazon. Embracing the expense of the book as a sunk cost, along with the emotional sunk cost of having given it as a gift years earlier, allowed me to help my son release himself from all that needless guilt. I actually suggest doing this with every item in our home. And I'm not the first one to make this suggestion. If you read books on minimalism or organization, I mean, it's it's made in other places as well. I'm simply, I'm simply trying to help identify why this is a positive exercise to go through. I'm not trying to introduce something brand new. It's not an easy task to go through every item, but it is really worth it. Every thing that we own, it carries with it a measure of weight and responsibility. 
And so excessive ownership of stuff becomes this terrible burden. Each item should be measured by how it impacts the person who owns it right then. If it's enjoyed or even cherished, then it's kept. If it elicits no emotion but has high utility, it's kept. But if it produces negative emotions or if the item has no purpose, then discard it. Having done this myself, I found it to be liberating. And I have never missed anything I've gotten rid of. Uh, Another place we can use sunk cost is with groups, clubs, or teams. I grew up in the 1980s where the Dallas Cowboys were called America's Team. They were on TV every week. Then I started high school in 1989, and they went on to win three Super Bowls in four years. That was nearly 30 years ago. I have hated the team owner that entire time. I'm really not a fan of any of the players. So this year I did something I never thought I would do. I switched my favorite team. I live in Indianapolis and I've lived in or near Indy for 20 years. I went through the entire Peyton Manning era rooting for the Cowboys. Finally, at the end of the 21-22 season, last February 2022, I decided I did not want to root for a team I didn't like anymore. So I made the switch. And guess what? Not one person cared. Nobody even cared for a second. I told my wife about this decision with the same solemnness as though I was announcing a shift in my sexual orientation. And she just shrugged. Regardless of the group, club or team that we root for or that we vote for, it's worthwhile to ask how we feel about them right now. My guess is that typically we'd have a very positive association filled with good memories. But what if it is not positive and filled with good memories? If we start to introspect and realize that it isn't working, whatever it is, then it can move us to where we can decide what we want to do about it. Most of the time, there'll be some sort of adjustment. If I'm feeling complacent, then maybe what I want is to become more committed. Uh, Rarely, we'd make a complete switch, but that's possible. If we've rooted for a sports team, like say we've rooted for the Lakers, uh, most likely we'll continue rooting. But perhaps we won't. It won't make sense anymore. It's the freedom that the possibility gives us that makes it so worth it. And because we're only focused on this, we're not worried about any of the rooting or or the things we've purchased in the past, the team member, any of that. We're not worried about any of that. Then we can make these decisions. Typically, when people do walk away from something that is no longer working, they're filled with anger. And that's because they feel they've tried it so hard to make it work. No matter what they did, they continue to be unhappy. And so they blame the team or the church or the group or the club that caused them all this anger. When in fact, the anger is their responsibility because they waited until they were at this angry place to leave, to leave something that hadn't been working for a long time. When we have internalized how sunk cost works, we're able to be honest about where we stand with groups and where they stand with us. We can change our role or level of commitment because it's what works for us now without romanticizing or brooding about the past. We can make those decisions dispassionately and without fear. And I I really enjoy social media and I'll see friends on Facebook or on other platforms and they're still complaining about... You know, the church they went to that they left 20 years ago or some group or another. Again, these things are, they're all part of that sunk cost we don't want to invest ourselves into. About two years ago, our youngest son told his mother and myself 
that he was gay. I was very surprised. I was not disappointed, and we've not had any problem supporting him and helping him embrace himself and his future. Now, my wife and I have been members of the same church since we were born. Both our families raised us in our faith, and it has been important to us. While not perfect, we have very positive feelings about what our faith has meant to us. But many churches are struggling to accept members of the LGBTQ community, and that includes ours. This has created a difficult situation for our family. Should we stay or should we leave? I mean, we've always felt comfortable there. As we discussed this, and we have had so many discussions about this, I found the more we talked about everything we had given to our faith community, the time, money, energy, it made making the choice very hard. However, when we talked about how things were right now, just at the present moment, it was much more clear. My wife, myself, and one of our sons still go. We mainly help out with the little kids. We agreed that leaving entirely would mean we would not be in a position to help any others navigate what we had gone through. Rather, we stay and we limit our role. We withhold most of our financial contributions because we're uncomfortable financially supporting a group that we feel is prejudiced against our son. Uh, this new role feels good. We, we really are happy with what we've decided. It meets our needs and our son understands that we are trying to be there for other kids whose parents may not be so comfortable with coping when their children realize they're part of the LGBTQ community. A final group that we can utilize sunk cost with, let's do acquaintances, friends, and partners. I've been a marriage counselor more than 20 years. There are these really consistent patterns that I see from couples. One of the most troubling I would, I would say especially troubling uh, routine is when a couple comes in long after marriage counseling could possibly help. They either fight or ignore each other. But by that time, there's so much contempt and there's been so much damage that I as a therapist can't really help them. They no longer want therapy to work. As I have with possessions that we discussed and groups that I discussed I would suggest going through every relationship that a person has. Where are we at? Are there acquaintances that are draining us? Or maybe we want to be closer to them. Maybe we really like them. I've got a couple of buddies who this last year, I really like them. They're really good guys. I took the opportunity to go to a concert with each one of them. One of them I went to a couple concerts with. And it really enhanced our friendship. So just because you're not trying to bring in all your extra feelings doesn't mean you're going to throw everything away, but it does mean that things may change. Maybe there are friends who don't really fit in with the pattern of our life anymore. What about our partner? Do we actually have to wait until we hate each other to evaluate where we are in our relationship? With permission, I share the story of a very close friend of mine about 15 years ago. He and I were, we were just getting to know each other at that time. And one afternoon, we were in an office working on a project. He was primarily complaining about his wife. Legitimate or not, he had a long list of complaints. I listened for quite a while. Finally, I told him, and actually, I've told many, many people this over the years in therapy and such. I said, either you decide right now that you're going to love your wife exactly the way she is. No caveats. You're going to embrace her 100% or divorce her before you guys hate each other, ruin your lives, destroy your kids' lives, and where you're young enough and gorgeous enough that you guys will not have any trouble finding a new partner. He got really quiet. 
And he, then he stopped complaining. But he didn't actually do either of those suggestions. So about 10 years later, they did go through a really nasty divorce. Both sides were wounded, and, and my friend has been estranged from his children. Utilizing the concept of sunk cost would help us to avoid so much unnecessary pain. If parents could acknowledge that regardless of the past, the present isn't working, then they could either, and think about how powerful this is, instead of waiting until you're so damaged, you can either address the issues while they're still in this manageable form, or even decide to separate and focus your energies on making sure your children are okay, rather than trying to screw each other during a divorce. So much pain experienced in relationships comes after both sides know it is not working and that it won't ever work. And that is not necessary. Okay, sunk cost. If you can internalize it, it requires that you're able to set your emotions to the side, forget about the past for a moment, really identify what has value now at this moment, this present moment. Future ifs are all put on the back burner. With this new perspective, a person can make choices that are in their own best interest and not be hindered by things that are ultimately out of our control.